the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association, more commonly known as VEPLA. VEPLA is a non-political, multidisciplinary professional association concerned with planning, legal and environmental fields. Welcome to PX52 today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Hello Jess. Today we have another exciting interview. I feel like we've had quite a few very exciting interviews recently. Today we're interviewing Costa Kaiser from DKO Architecture. As founding partner, Costa Kaiser is actively involved in all DKO projects throughout Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia. He is a respected architect and urban designer with a particular strategic understanding of residential design in all its forms. He is driven by a passion to explore new housing types, forms and configurations. This has given rise to a number of innovative apartment and housing design responses, embracing and enriching contemporary residential lifestyles. This passion for interrogating convention, coupled with a firm commitment to architectural integrity, delivers a strong emphasis on sustainable communities, setting new benchmarks for contemporary residential development. He's also a panel member of the Victorian Government's Design Review Panel, focusing on improving the quality of built environments. Welcome to the show, Coase. Thank you very much, Jessica and uh, Peter. It's very nice being here. (laughs) Coase, what do you see as the greatest challenges for the architectural industry at present? Uh, I think the biggest challenge for architects today is keeping abreast of the way society is changing. I think architects and architecture have changed immeasurably in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. The way the industry is put together, working with project managers, working with builders, and I think that architects have somewhat lost uh, a little bit of their of their importance in the process, and I think the biggest challenge is actually redefining the importance of architecture and design in the actual building process in this country. Where, where does that come from? How can that be changed? Oh, I think there are a number of passionate architects that, that are advocating for the industry uh, and for quality architecture. I think um, things are certainly slowly changing in Australia. I, I think, for instance, in New South Wales, from a planning point of view, there, there's a um, SEP65, which is redefining um, the way that residential architecture is put uh, put together. So I think there is incremental change that's actually improving um, the actual quality of the built environment. And so, Coast, did you start your professional um, experience in urban design or in architecture? That's a really good question. Uh, I studied in Holland and my degree in Holland um, was a a degree called architecture, architecture and city building. So and that kind of shows you the difference between the educational process in Australia and in Europe. In Europe, it's much more. There's much more emphasis on putting cities together, whereas here in Australia, it's often just about the built form itself. Mm. And we so, separate out architecture yes, and urban design. No, we actually see architecture and urban design as two separate, um, 
disciplines, which I think in many ways they are, but in many ways they're not. Mm, definitely. I, I guess you could say the same thing about planning. I think planning would really benefit from having more of an urban design emphasis in the educational side of planning. Yes, and I, I think that's the, that's the biggest um, challenge for planners, urban designers, urban designers and architects is that at the end of the day we're talking about three-dimensional environments and I think we can all learn from each other and um, I think there's an onus um, on the profession that that planners, urban designers and architects work closer. Mm, Definitely. I think we're moving towards that now. I seem to I keep seeing lots of different events and professional education events that are really targeting all three disciplines was back you know even five ten years ago it was very much focused on planning or urban design or architecture yeah Hmm. so I think we are seeing a shift in that space which is really really positive and and I think one of the great things about architecture and being an architect is that it's one of the last generalist uh, professions where architects need to know a little bit about everything Mm. and um Whereas a lot of the graduates that are um, leaving university nowadays have to specialise in things very, very quickly, whereas architects can be quite general. Uh, And um, I think that's a really good thing. Mm. Just going back, why did you do architecture in the first place? What motivated you to do that as a student? I think ever since I was a little kid, I used to draw a lot. Mm. And um, I I grew up in New Zealand um, from a Dutch family. Uh, my parents went back to Europe. And um, so I've had a kind of bicultural background. But um, especially growing up in New Zealand in a small city, um, the local library was where I really discovered architecture. Uh, and and um, there was a fabulous rack of books there. And I, I would read books on SOM and um, Le Corbusier and Mies on the Row. And it really kind of awakened an interest. And I would sketch a lot at home. Mm. So, so I guess from the day dot, I was actually lucky um, that I was always in, inter- interested in, in drawing and in built form. Mm. And how big was the city that you grew up in in New Zealand? Um, is this a small city? It's a city called Christchurch, ah, which is, Christchurch. I've yeah. actually got an office there right now, so I'm kind of reasonably proud of that. Um, Christchurch would have about 350,000 people. Yeah, um, But the library was where I kind of really discovered the world and uh, the things I was interested in. Mm, definitely. That's a podcast I'd like to do, Jess, with you about libraries because I just think that they're very underrated civic resource and there's not many places like that left. There's a public space. Oh, libraries are sensational places. I think the um, library that the City of Melbourne have at Docklands uh, is, is a fabulous building and, and you just walk in there, it's just, um, it reeks of knowledge, it's fabulous. And Coase, would you say it's an exciting time to be in the city development and design space currently? I think it's always an exciting time, but I think it's particularly exciting now because I think that people are slowly starting to understand that the actual built form is important. Um, I'm I'm probably a little bit um, disappointed about some of the built form outcomes in Melbourne in the last five years. I think a lot of the towers that are being built in the city are disappointing, and I think that the general population has started to understand that that the sense of urbanness is actually really important and um, people prefer Collingwood to to, um, 
Docklands because there's a, a, a streetscape, there's an activation, there's a vibe there that, that they find really attractive. So I think there's a huge challenge and it is exciting as an architect to actually find the kind of triggers that actually make a place special. Mm, um, and I think that um, that's the ongoing challenge, I think, for the architectural profession that you also asked, Peter, is kind of what what are we adding to the actual sense of place? What are we adding to the street? What are we adding to the suburb? Mm. Would you say that's your biggest frustration with the industry as well in that regard? Um, I think that is, yes, no, I think that is a frustration. I think that there's a bit of an obsession about what things look like. Um, I think what things look like is important, but I think there's also a bit of fashion there. Um, I, I think how things, how buildings touch the ground and what they do to, to the street, I think that's actually pretty important also. And I think uh, some of my peers are actually more concerned about uh, what dress the building's wearing or what clothes the building's wearing and, and w- what it's doing to the urban scape, um, they're probably less, there's, there's less emphasis on. I actually always prefer to call myself an urbanist and uh, I tell the people in my practice that we're actually urbanists as well as architects and we should really be looking at the urban condition, not, not just the building and what it looks like. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about your role on the OVGA panel? Through that process, do you have, um, I guess, some control over those elements of the city that we were just talking about? Uh, I've been on the OVA, OVGA panel for the last five, six years, I think. Um, I think it's a it's a advisory panel. Uh, I think it's an exceptionally good process. Probably what I think my greatest contribution to the panel has been is actually assisting um, my peers, architects that are appearing on the panel and helping them actually navigate through a fairly complex system. A lot of architects struggle with uh, dealing with clients and you've got very um, um, opinionated clients that that really want one outcome, uh, whereas the I think it's the onus is on, is on the architect to actually table a, a proposition that actually both deals with what the client wants, but also deals with what the right answer is. And I think a lot of architects can actually get um, bombarded in the process by by heavily opinionated clients. And I think part of my role is really kind of helping the architects that are appearing and actually assisting them in getting their propositions over the line. Mm, definitely. I just realised we didn't spell out the acronym, so for listeners out there, not in Victoria, OVGA is the Office of the Victorian Government, Government Architect. Architect. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's pretty hard for architects, but it's a competitive space. Uh, they have to pitch a, pitch a job, for, have to pitch a design for a client, <clears throat> and the client can really can be a monster sometimes, or can be enlightened, probably less, more so than than in the middle and it's driven by costs the architect gets squeezed in a, in a number of ways don't they um look i think there are a lot of very good clients out there um but i think that's part of the process uh, it, it's not just the design i think part of the architectural skill is having a a level of emotional intelligence and and navigating a proposition through the process. Uh, it's not just the, the client, it's also the builder, it's also 
um, the statutory authorities. So I think part of the role of being an architect is, is tabling a proposition, tabling a vision, and actually um, really working that through the system. Um, I always tell um, the staff that work for me on, on every project, you, you really got to figure out what the four or five aspects are that you're not going to um, negotiate on, that you're not going to lose, and to actually work those four or five items and actually get those approved. Um, so it's kind of choosing a battle and choosing what's important and choosing what's not important. It's, it's also, the, we've talked about the outside of buildings, but it's also about the inside of buildings and how they feel to the senses. And that seems to be coming a lot more in architecture these days. Yeah, and, and I, I really have to say that our colleagues in New South Wales uh, are probably much further ahead than here in Victoria. I think the actual SEP, the actual Good Design Guide in Sydney, have certainly um, done really good things for... Um, residential architecture, just the whole sense of sustainability, of natural ventilation, of the the sense that sunlight's important. Here in Victoria, yeah, it still staggers me that so many buildings get built that are solely south-facing or apartments that are solely south-facing. I think that's actually wrong. And um, I think there are lots of elements of the SEP that, that could, SEP 65, that actually could be brought into um, Victorian planning rigs. Now, I also want to pick your brain on Dutch architecture. So, obviously, Holland is one of the most densely populated places in the world, yet they have a really high level of amenity and a high level of density. How have they achieved this and what can Australia learn from the Dutch way? Um, Dutch, Dutch density is really interesting. I, I think um, there's a great thing about averaging, where, where um, Amsterdam, for instance, isn't a big city. It's barely a million people. Um, most buildings in Amsterdam are three or four stories. There are a couple of towers in, in the kind of suburbs that are to the southeast and suburbs that are to the south. Um, but, but the bulk of the city is this average three, four, five stories. Um, whereas here in Australia, we, we've kind of got this methodology where we have these really high density city centres, um, both in Sydney and Melbourne, tall buildings on podiums, and then um, there are these suburbs that, that are basically uh, sprawling suburbs that, that are no different uh, in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Brisbane, they're very similar, very low density. So. What the Dutch do very well, what most European countries do very well, is that the the basic density is much higher than than we're talking about here. The the average suburban density here in Australia would be something like 10 dwellings a hectare, whereas in in Holland it would be something like 35 dwellings a hectare. So the law of averages means that that they can get much more people in, and also they they've. Um, understood that we have maximum density, you also have to have maximum amenity. So a lot of the new suburbs in Amsterdam, for instance, on the old docklands, uh, really leverage off that, that aquatic aspect really well. And that's where they put the actual taller buildings and the, and the density. And so do architects in Holland play a greater role in the design process as well than in Australia? Um, or is it very similar? No, I, I think there's more understanding in um, Northern Europe. And when I talk about Holland, I'm also probably talking about Germany and Denmark. 
that uh, architecture and design is actually very important. Um, part of having a, a Dutch education is you spend a lot of time looking at plans. Um, every city in Holland actually publishes a plan book every year of all the applications that have been uh, processed that year. So there's this obsession about, about plan that's actually very much part of rational and, and modernistic architecture. Um, there's less emphasis on plan here in Australia. Um, and uh, I think... Um, that planning how things are put together concept in Northern Europe is actually one big difference between Northern Europe and Australia. Mm, definitely. W would that translate here, do you think, that some of that... Uh, well, I, again, I, I don't want to sound like that New South Wales is the um, nirvana of good design, but 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 I think uh, certainly what the city of Sydney is doing is, is part of that process, that they're actually much more... They're actually publishing plans more of, of, of projects and you can actually look at a lot of what's being built. You can actually check it on the City of Sydney websites. And uh, that's actually very helpful. Mm. How do you kick along change? I mean, how do you get new ideas? Because the, the nature of institutions, whether it's whatever field, is to be conservative and not to adapt. How do you push things through? Oh, I think passion is a wonderful thing. And... Um, yeah, I think that's certainly part of the success of um, of DKO is that we, we as a practice have always been passionate about architecture. And I think if you seriously believe what what you're doing and are passionate about it, you can actually start to change things. And, people, and institutions and governments have to be open to ideas too. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, and, and look, coming back to um, New South Wales, um, it was a very enlightened planning minister, Bob Carr, who actually was part of the incorporation of SEP 65 and he was passionate about the quality of the built environment and it's actually through him that Sydney is where it is now. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Do you think that we, we've had a very big building boom in Victoria for the last 10 years, 15 years? 10, 15 years, yeah. And, and there's been a lot of development. A lot of that's been concentrated in certain areas around the CBD and in the CBD. There's one view that we've really blown a big opportunity to create good spaces. Can, can you talk to that? Look, I think it's it's a really interesting question, Peter. Um, I got um, I've got three children, and um, they tell me that they love Collingwood, they love Fitzroy, but they don't like Docklands. And for they, listeners outside of Victoria, Collingwood and Fitzroy are inner city suburbs that were developed in the 1850s, 1860s, yeah. and have a vibrant streetscape, um, a density that's actually very attractive. Whereas a lot of the new build um, and 
and is is high rise towers on podiums, and it kind of worries me. For instance, suburbs like um, Fisherman's Bend that are huge opportunities for the city and for the state and for the country, that could be fabulous um, urban renewal areas. It kind of worries me that um, the city and the state aren't taking a more prescriptive. Um, vision view of what they could be. Um, I, I still one of my favourite cities in the world is still Paris. You walk through Paris, most of Paris is seven, eight stories tall, and there's a sense of vibrancy that's actually really special. High-rise towers on podiums that are skinned by residential architecture and built form just don't have the same feel and just don't have the same sense of place. And it kind of worries me that we're often um, relying on developers who, who are really mining air rights to actually create a built form that, that I think won't quite stand the, the uh, test of time. And, and I'm always intrigued by what, what the younger, uh, certainly what my kids like. And it's interesting that, that they like vibrancy and streetscape and activity and hotels on corners and, and just a sense of a different type of environment. And I think a lot of the new environments that we're building now aren't, um, don't actually create that sense of place. It shouldn't be that hard, should it? I mean, this is a really good opportunity we've got to do this right, because as you say, once it's done, it's done. Yeah, I I think part of the challenge here, as I said, is that the, the state sees development as an economic lever, whereas I think, it, yes, it is that, but it also needs to be a vision of what the future could be. I think, you know, we, we should be the clever country, the clever state, and I think we, we can have an environment that's actually um, vision-defining and very, very special. Is that more demanding government? Is that is that government demanding more from projects? Do you think? And what do you think, Jess? Hmm? Yeah, I think it is definitely. There's there's really not a high expectation in that regard. I don't think. Yeah, I think um, the government could actually, um, and and again, um, certainly. City of Sydney has quite prescriptive DCPs and envelope controls over major parts of the city. So the City of Sydney is actually providing a, a vision of what the environment could actually be. Um, uh, here, here in Melbourne there are plot ratios, 18 to 1 in the CBD. Um, that's one of the only controls plus some setbacks that 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 we have. Um, I would actually like um, the controls to be a lot more prescriptive to actually have a, a greater sense of creating a vision of what a place could actually be. Mm. And what about long-term adaptability of these buildings? Do you think that's something that we're incorporating enough in our design? No, I don't. And I think the, the latest planning amendment, C308, that the City of Melbourne brought in has a um, adaptability clause that car parks need car parks and podiums need to be adaptable to office space. I think that's actually really clever. And I think um, adaptability and actually reusing buildings in the future is actually really special. I live in a in a converted uh, warehouse factory in uh, Collingwood. And just that repurposing, I think, is a, actually a really important part of architecture and of uh, creating a sense of place. 
Some would say that to date, modern architecture hasn't exactly infiltrated our suburban areas, particularly in Victoria. Would you agree with this? And do you think that um, high quality architecture is an elite concept? Ooh, tough one, Jeff. Jeff. Oh, that's, a, that's a tough one, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Pete's I, question from someone find, else's. What I find really interesting is that uh, we've got work Australia-wide. Um, it's a five-hour flight to Darwin. You actually drive out of the airport in Darwin and the suburbs around the airport in Darwin feel like the suburbs around the airport here in Melbourne uh, or Sydney for that matter. Um, so from a sense of place point of view, the suburban condition in Australia is actually very, very similar. Um, I think that architecture should not be a elite thing. I think contemporary architecture out in the suburbs should actually be encouraged and promoted. Um, Often in the presentations I do, I always start with a beautiful Howard Arkley photo of um, the northern suburbs of Melbourne, just that suburbanness. Uh, I think architecture should be um, um, high quality in the high density areas of the city, but also out in the suburbs. And I think what's actually really intriguing is that I still think the stats are that 85% of Australians live in non-architect design homes. Um, project home builders and I've got a lot of very good project home build, builder clients but a lot of project home builders are really defining what our suburbs are and again I think that architects should be more involved in that space um, uh, as a practice we've we've always been hev heavily involved in that space uh, I think it's a, a challenge for architects to be more involved in recreating and redefining what Australian suburbs uh, not just look like but also feel like and increasing the density in Australian suburbs. Mm. It's good to know that some home builders are seeking advice from the likes of DKO in that space because I think that's really important. Yeah, I think uh, home builders, are, project home builders are really starting to understand that they too have a onus on creating good environments. I think um, uh, planners, state state planners Australia-wide are understanding to create vibrant communities. You really have to have higher densities. Higher densities are actually a really good part of sustainability, linked to transport. It, it starts to become a really good story. Case, the, the project builders using an architect might be a point of differentiation for them. I think it is. A and that's probably part of their sales pitch that I haven't seen before. Yeah, it's, but again, um, Peter, it's not just using an architect. It's getting an architect to actually efficiently design uh, a three-dimensional form that actually sits on the lots, that starts to design uh, two houses next to each other, that starts to design what the street feels like, what the corners feel like. So it's not just what it looks like. It's also trying to maximise living rooms and, and private open space towards northern sunlight. Well, so I'm going through that very process at the moment with a house being yeah. designed by an architect for, for, for myself and I... The, the value add by the architect is incredible and what they see, in this case Peter McIntyre, what he sees and tells us this is what it's going to be like, this is yeah. where you're going to spend your time, this is why I'm doing it, This it's, it's an incredible uplift. It, it, it certainly, I, th I think architects in the suburban condition can actually have a huge impact on the livability of our space. 
Um, being in a house where you do have a living room that faces north, where you can actually sit out in a courtyard in the, in the winter, where you can get breezes that actually come through the house, all those things are really important for a sense of living and for a sense of well-being. Each generation thinks itself smarter than the previous generation. What do you think? What do you believe future generations will look back and think about our performance with design and building? Um, I think it's a very good question, Peter. Um, that's why I was saying before that I often um, defer to my children um, about um, um, the work I do, and and um, I think. Um, it's a tough one because we, we all think we, we look back and we all think we're smarter than the other generations that have gone on before us and how could they make those mistakes and we're so much cleverer. I probably think that we're the first generation of architects that are really understanding the the um, um, tension between the urban condition and architecture. Because the actual nature of our cities are changing so quickly, uh, the densities are changing so quickly, uh, I think this generation of architects is really dealing with that change. It's interesting, I've got an office in Vietnam uh, and in Ho Chi Minh City, we got 35 staff there, and I've actually learned more from Vietnam than I think they've got from me. And the biggest thing I've learned is how to deal with density. Um, certainly in this in this culture we have here, you know, we, we still prefer to have that house that's surrounded by a fence uh, that's actually quite disengaged from, from the public realm. I think the generation of architects that we have now are really coming to grips with what the urban scape could actually be. Here's another tough one for you then with medium density housing. This is often probably one of the most hotly contested areas in planning that Pete and I probably deal with. Um, It attracts large volumes of objections. It's highly political, but this is the housing type that we need to accommodate our growing population. What can be done to perhaps better communicate to our community the value of medium density housing, particularly when it's done well? Is there a communications piece that we need to really focus on in? I think benchmarking um, the the value add is actually really important. And look, most Australians travel, they travel to Europe, um, they actually walk through the streets in Paris and London and Berlin and they say these are really cool places. Um, I think there's this obsession about uh, tallness here in Australia. I don't think tallness is actually the real issue. I think it's providing an appropriate density, uh, providing a density around major transport nodes I think is a logical outcome and I think it's communicating the upside in a three-dimensional form. It's not just um, a written document, it needs to be a look and feel. Uh, so I think really starting to, to communicate that to the community that um, there is an upside and you are going to get this really exciting urban environment. I think we've got that missing middle. We don't have, as you say, we've got the tall buildings in the, around the cluster around the CBD and then it just goes flat and then you might have occasional sort of... But we don't have that uh, mid-range. It's like we either have a land cruiser or a, or a little mini. We don't have anything in between the product product choice because our society is very very diverse now yeah. the number of people living by themselves or two people households or 
Uh, as an architectural um, studio, we also undertake our own development from time to time. And what we normally do is we actually test our ideas. Our, our most profitable development to date has been building five five-storey townhouses on a 163-square-metre block of land in Collingwood. Again, a urban suburb. Um, but that density equates to something like 400 dwellings a hectare. Uh, and um, most high-rises wouldn't achieve that same density. The other thing that's interesting about that project, which also won an architectural award um, the year we submitted it, is that all the real estate agents said, oh, five stories, you have to put a lift in it. We basically said, look, there's not enough space to put a lift in it. Uh, we solved that project in a week. Which project and, was that, and of interest? Uh, it's Bedford Street, um, yeah. just almost on the corner of Stanley on um, Smith Street and Johnson Street. And it, it kind of really taught taught me and taught us as a um, practice that, that architects can lead the way. I think um, the market is very receptive to change and a lot of agents look, look backwards and I think that's part of the role of the architect to actually say, well, yeah, that's fine, but you can do things in a different way. I still recall saying to the agent who actually sold the terraces for us that in Amsterdam, all the canal houses that line the canals are uh, five, six, four storeys. None of them have lifts. Why can't we do the same here? We need a lot more freedom of thought, I think, Jess. I mean, you're talking about um, high, medium density around train stations, but one thing, what about medium density around public parks or, or, or other places or rivers or... Yeah, because the transport will come to those places, particularly with the new transport forms we've got. You think? Yeah, we, I, we, I we think maximum, we need to be a bit more relaxed about I think things. Maximum amenity um, should be maximum density. I I do think, and and one of the biggest um, things that's quite sad about Fisherman's Bend is that the government haven't hasn't put a heavy rail uh, access to Fisherman's Bend yet. I do think railway stations are important and actually public transport is important and I think that's the natural uh, way to increase density but certainly um, I, I'm probably I think the older I get, the more I'm interested in, in that kind of three, four, five story, uh, doing things in a slightly different way. I think some people like apartments, some people like houses. I think there's a huge space in between those two. The hybrid sort of space? Yeah. So how best do we promote the transmission of our ideas? How do we promote this as, an, as a concept within the industry more broadly? Oh, look, yeah, I think uh, I'm a member of, of the AIA. I think um, it's incumbent on, on the profession to actually encourage good d design. Um, I think architects need to communicate what they're doing in a visual sense. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of my peers uh, haven't done that well in the past, and I think it's incumbent on, on architects and the architectural profession and planning profession for, for that matter to actually really be excited about the opportunities that the future does offer us. And, and um, I think part of that needs to be that, that we need to have incre incremental change. And part of that change is saying that 
the the urban typology of a tower on a podium is not necessarily the only way of achieving a um, higher density outcome. What are your favourite cities for ideas? Um, I love Los Angeles, uh, which I which is probably very politically, it gets a bad rap, which is very politically incorrect. Yeah, that's right, it gets a bad rap. Um, but I kind of love it because it is a, a hotbed of of modern architecture um, certainly the architects that escaped that, that left Europe in the 30s and 40s that actually went there that that and the whole kind of case study uh, modern architecture um, scene I find absolutely invigorating um, I've always liked New York uh, again because it's a um, city that in many ways through our culture has been is actually very familiar to us, but it does have this intensity that's actually quite um, astounding. Um, Look in Europe, I'm very fond of Berlin. Um, Again, it's this big city feeling that's actually really special. And they're all, certainly cities like Berlin, there's there's not a great deal of high rise there. Uh, still, it's actually really interesting. In small towns, LA. Um, um, uh, yeah, there's not a huge amount of high-rise in LA. There's certainly a downtown that's actually quite quite tall, but but there are a whole series of different residential typologies that 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 they use that that we could be using here also. And what about smaller places? What smaller places do you like? Well, I love Byron Bay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Small, smaller places. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I've always been. I've lived in Amsterdam for a long time, and I've always been very fond of Amsterdam. I last year I went to Copenhagen and uh, spent uh, three, four days looking at Bjork Ingels' work, and I was absolutely fascinated by that. Um, the sense of how a small city can actually create really vibrant, interesting architecture. Always keep learning, Jess. That's the that's the tip there. I think always keep learning. Yeah. And, and what are you uh, reading, watching or listening to at the moment that inspires you? I'm a, I'm, I've always got about 10 books at my bedside, but um, I've just finished reading The History of Vietnam, uh, and, um, which, which has absolutely fascinated me. And through that, I'm now reading a book about Charles de Gaulle. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in, certainly interested in history and... Um, I've also just discovered a, a podcast called Dan Carlin, who actually talks about history in a very different way. I think that our historical bias is quite informed by um, our culture, and, and just looking at history in a slightly different way is actually really intriguing. Mm, makes it live. Mm. Jess, what, what's caught your eye lately? I've been doing a bit of yoga, Pete, taking time out to, you know, have an hour's break from our busy lifestyles, which has been really relaxing and really beneficial. But I'm also still reading Sapiens, which you'll be very happy to know. Please, (laughs) put us out of our misery. Finish it. And what about you, Pete? Um, I've been interested in uh, behavioural, population behavioural matters, so that if, say, a local team wins, the people in the city take a lot more risks. So there's, there's all these things you can do to plug into the mood of a city. And I think that will, def- like, for example, if, say, yeah, the example is a, a soccer team or something like that, if they win, people in that city for a while afterwards will make a lot of risky decisions. 
So there's all these sort of behavioural things we don't know that we can now know. So and the data around that, I guess, would yeah. assist in painting that picture. Yeah, mm. not just that we get need more police wag, you know, wagons out, but just a lot of other things. So just the, the way people behave and how that can be, in a good way, um, considered. So that's, that's, that's what I've been getting to, Jess. Oh, wonderful. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thank you, listeners. Um, Pete, Pete actually has very limited voice today so hence why i'm doing the conclusion today and thank you very much to coast that was an incredible interview and really interesting and yeah we really value your time so thank you and thank you pete and listeners if you'd like to listen to the urban broadcast collective which we're a member of that would be really terrific as well and feel free to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org and thank you again for listening to our little podcast in your busy lives thank you listeners thank you 